Amen. Praise the Lord for God and His working in our lives. That song, of course, based on Job and the sufferings that he had and his uh, proclamation that he would come forth as gold whenever God was finished. And uh, what a wonderful truth. Take your Bibles tonight. We're going to begin in Psalm 8. Psalm 8. We're going to look at this entire psalm this evening. This message is going to be a little bit more of a study than uh, just a regular preached sermon. So we're going to use uh, our Bibles a lot. We're going to move around from Genesis all the way to 1 John and, and many points in between. And so uh, we're going to start here and then we are going to uh, jump back to Genesis chapter 1. And so Psalm 8, <clears throat> uh, ask a, an, a thought-provoking question. Uh, and so as we look here, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man, that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And I want to speak tonight on this thought, what is man? And let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, the promise that when we gather together in your name that you meet with us. And Lord, we certainly need your presence and power. Lord, I pray that you would set us aside, set me aside, that you would uh, speak through me what needs to be heard tonight. Lord, share with us what you've given. Lord, encourage us with what we need to hear. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that we are here to honor and glorify you. And Lord, make it so in our hearts, make it so in our lives. Lord, grow us until uh, we have come into your presence. In Jesus' name and amen. <clears throat> so when you look here and he uh, gets into this, the psalmist writing uh, is David and he is, you know, oh Lord, oh Lord, how excellent is thy name. He is lifting up Christ. He has a view of God that is high, that is exalted. He sees God as holy, as magnificent. He sees God on display throughout the glory of his creation. Uh, and when you look and, you know, what we see, especially in an urban area like this, uh, is so diminished what, to, as to what David would have seen uh, as far as the, the night sky and the stars on display and the brightness with, with, they, with which they shine. And, and all of that in an area where there's so much artificial light uh, kind of cancels out or diffuses some of that light so that we, uh, we, we really don't grasp fully what he's saying here. It's hard for us to imagine the amount of stars in the heavens because there's so few of them that we can actually see. I realize that there are places on the earth you can go that cities are far and few between and things are more distant and you have a much greater view and better view of what actually is there in creation. But 
just the majesty of everything that God created. And the week before last, we were coming into Houston on the airplane and uh, looked out and the, there had been storms and the clouds were thick and full. And, you know, sometimes you're on an airplane and you look down and you can kind of make things out. These clouds look so thick that they, they would have, you would have thought that you could have stepped out and walked on them. Uh, it was almost a secondary horizon uh, that looked like mountains and, and, you know, the billowing, towering, a representation of God. And, and so we see here David describing here, and then in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. That God is so powerful that he can conquer the mighty with those things which seem so unable and incompetent to fight the mighty. He says in verse 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast made. Then the question, compared to all of that, what is man? Compared to the splendor of your glory and the work of your hands, what am I? In comparison, we're nothing. In comparison to what meets the eye, uh, we're unnoticeable. When we look and consider Psalm 144, also a psalm of David, in the first few verses here, he says, Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight, my goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him. Why is it that we're so special to God that God would leave heaven, put on human flesh, walk amongst us, bear our sins on a cross, die in agony and shame, conquer death and hell, rise victorious from a grave, give us his holy word, give us a spirit that is holy to lead us through life and to seal our salvation until the day of its redemption. What is man? Who are we? Why are we so valuable to God? Our life is but a vapor that appeareth a little time and then vanisheth away. The mountains prevail and remain. The stars in the sky burn for as many eons as God chooses for them to burn. But man's life comes and it goes. It's barely noticeable on the scale of eternity. And when you look even at the scale of time, one individual life is but a blip on the scale on the radar. In Genesis chapter 1, we begin to see here from the very beginning the, the value and the special relationship that God has designed for us. So, Pastor, why is this so important? I believe uh, two things tonight. Number one, that we have an improper view of God and his awesome holiness. Amen. And we also have an improper view of ourselves. Amen. And if we could gain a glimpse of God in his glory, and we could understand the reality of our existence, that it would fundamentally change the way that we approach and the way that we see the word of God, and life. Amen. So we look and consider this evening in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. That's a pretty important verse to understand in the day and age in which we live. There are only two genders. And no matter how many genders the world wants to dream up, there are only two. Uh, birth or Gender is not assigned at birth like the world's trying to imply. It was assigned in the womb when God created us. And when we look and we understand that man is the image of God. Why would the world go against and attack something so basic in nature as gender? And the answer is simply this. It's a revolt and a rebellion against the order that God has set in place. Now, that's not really the message tonight, so I don't want to harp there too long. But I do think that we need to understand the reality of who and what we are as human beings in the eyes of God and in God's economy of eternity, what role is it that we are to play? Why did he create us? What is it that he expects uh, from us? And how has he demonstrated for us how we can successfully be what he created us to be? And it starts with this thought that let us create man in our image. And so implicitly, from the beginning, and I understand tonight that to most of us here, I'm probably not going to say anything that's not really elementary in our fundamental beliefs and thinking. But I will say this, sometimes we understand these things whenever they're taken apart, but they get a little bit confusing when we try to put them together. Uh, and so we're going to just take a look tonight and be reminded of some basic things about how we're created. And the first thing is this, is that he says here, that we are created in God's image. Now define God. And God really cannot be defined in any terms in which man can understand in our finite, finite capability. But God here uses an interesting term when he says our image. And we believe that God is one God. And we know that he is one God comprised of three persons and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so as you look here tonight, when we talk about being created in God's image, we are created in that image. God, as a triune being or a trichotomy, he is three parts, but one, uh, one God. And that is the Father who sits upon the circle of the earth, who sits on his throne and rules and reigns over the universe, who set and keeps everything in order. He is the Son who walked among us and walked in human flesh that paid our sin debt that went and ascended back to heaven and told us when he went that if I go, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, and we know that he's there at the right hand of the Father and he's preparing a place for us and he is developing uh, that place and he is also making intercession for us or praying for us. Why is that? Well, we know from Job and other passages that the accuser of the brethren, Satan, likes to come before the presence of God and hurl accusations. I'm glad that as the devil is hurling accusations against us, that our Savior is sitting next to the throne of the Father praying for us. And we look and we understand who and what God is. We are in that image, that same image, that three-part entity or that three-part 
being. God's image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as Jesus prays, and as God the Father rules, the Holy Spirit has been given to dwell within us and to live within us and to convict us of our sin and to convince us of the truth of God's word and to seal us uh, in our salvation decision until the day in which God actually calls us home to empower us to holy living, to empower us to fulfill the will of God for our personal individual lives as well as our, his will for us as the church assembly. It's the image of God. We are created in that image. We are created like the Most High. What greater honor could God bestow upon us in His creation than to mold us and to make us in His image? Amen. To have us to look and to appear as He does. Then there's the makeup of man. How does that translate? What does that look like practically? Well, as God is a triune being, I am a triune being as you are. We are not, however, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What we are is physical, mental, and spiritual. In other words, we have a physical body, we have a mental capacity or a living soul, and we have a spirit that died in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, but is regenerated at the moment of our salvation by the Holy Spirit of God when we trust Him as our Savior. And so we are created in God's image, a trichotomy. When we're born in this present age, there are only two parts of us that are born. There is a body and there is the soul. The spirit lies dead within us until the moment of salvation. The moment of salvation, then the spirit regenerates us and makes that spirit come to life again. A lost person cannot sit in a worship service and appreciate or understand fully what they're experiencing because they have no spirit with which to commune with God that lives within them. They cannot read the Bible on their own and fully comprehend its message and its pages because there is no spirit living within them to help them comprehend it on their own. The Ethiopian eunuch, you remember as Philip came to him and he read, I believe, Isaiah chapter 53. We know it was the book of Isaiah, uh, but he's reading Isaiah and Philip asked him, uh, hey, do you understand what you're reading there? How can I except some man should guide me? Uh, and so we don't have to have man's guidance today, though God gives us guidance from, his, from, from our leaders and spiritual leaders that he's provided, but we have that great high priest that lives and dwells within us that gives us that ability to decipher, to understand the love letter from God that describes to his child who he is and how he loves us and what our condition is without him and how he is the remedy to what ails us and how we're broken down. My friends, tonight, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit came and brought that spirit back to life within you so that you have the capacity and the ability to commune and to fellowship with God. And by the way, that's the purpose for which we were created. Amen. Until I trust Jesus as my Savior, I cannot fulfill the purpose for which I have been created, nor can I understand fully on my own the path to get there. So the makeup of man. We have the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit manifested in his creation of man who has a physical body with which we must deal. We have a mental, a, a, a body, soul, and our soul, it's our, our mind, will, and emotion is our soul. I put here uh, just mental, but it's our mind, will, and emotion makes up and composes our soul. And then the spirit that is brought to life at regeneration. Then we see 
God just demonstrate for us how we are to live and how we can sustain uh, living for him and bringing glory to him through this life. And he starts here, I want to start here uh, with Jesus. Jesus uh, comes and he goes to John the Baptist and he is baptized there and John acknowledges him and he's ready to begin his earthly ministry. And uh, as he does that, the Bible gets very interesting. I find it very interesting that the spirit of God leads him to temptation. Now, if you'll hold your place here, we'll be back. But Matthew chapter number four, uh, and we're going to look at several verses here in Matthew chapter number four tonight. Uh, but I want to just draw out, and we could preach a couple of sermons just on this one text. Uh, I just want to kind of hit some highlights here uh, to, to make the case for our identity who and what we are and what God's expectations from us are. It's important to note that Jesus came and gave us an example of how we could live. The Bible tells us clearly that he is our example in all things. So we are created in the image of God. Now God gives us here as Jesus begins his ministry a demonstration of how a man who is led by the Spirit can overcome the temptation of this world. I understand tonight that Jesus was 100% God, yet he was 100% man. That when he walked on this earth, he never ceased to be God. But I also understand that as my example, he had to live much of his life as a man on this earth as man. Uh, it's impossible to tempt God. It's, it's impossible to bring God to a point where anything offered to him would cause him to have any temptation whatsoever uh, of, uh, of straying from what God's plan for his life was. But Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Listen, God can't be touched with uh, the things that trouble you and I. He's too high for that. He's too lofty for that. He's too holy for that. In his godness, uh, he, uh, he cannot be harmed, but in his humanity, he is susceptible to everything that you and I are susceptible to. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are and yet without sin. So when we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, we see him, the Son of God, being led of the Spirit of God, going to do the will of God, demonstrating for you and I that what God has ordained for us, we too can do in the power of the Spirit. And in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He was led by the Spirit of God into temptation. What a curious thing. And sometimes we think that God is not going to allow us to endure temptation. My friends, our faith will never grow unless it's tested. Amen. We'll never trust God unless he comes through for us. And God is not cruel in his leading. God is making a point to us that if Jesus goes in the power of the Spirit, so too can you go in the power of the Spirit and overcome. And so as he lays this out here, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. I'm going to make the note here, T.W. Hunt wrote in his book, writing and expressing this chapter, that it was in a moment of extreme physical weakness, exhausted and desperately hungry, that Jesus made a choice. In his choice, he demonstrated that abundant spiritual life can overrule and dominate even when the flesh cries most desperately for satisfaction. 
And in that moment of his physical exhaustion, in that moment of his hunger and thirst, the tempter came and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And we look here and we see as Jesus speaks and he uh, is dealing with this temptation that Satan simply comes to him and says, I want you, Jesus, I know that you're hungry. Why don't you just take this stone and speak to it and it'll turn into bread and you can satisfy that hunger that's in you. The temptation to satisfy the flesh. I want you to notice Jesus in his response did not respond to him emotionally. He did not respond to him intellectually. He took the very scripture that Satan misquoted to him to tempt him and quoted correctly that scripture back to Satan to drive him away. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Bible says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee and to know uh, what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. Isn't it interesting that they wandered for forty years to learn their lesson and Jesus fast for forty days. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, uh, out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And Satan's temptation was a physical temptation. It was a temptation of the body. Jesus demonstrating to us that you are a body, a physical being, and that physical being has appetites, and that physical being has needs, and that uh, physical being will hunger, and that physical being will thirst, and sometimes it will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and sometimes it will hunger and thirst to satisfy its own desires and to obtain the things of this world. And Satan looks at him in his moment of weakness and says, turn this stone to bread, and Jesus displays the physical discipline that's necessary to say to him that I don't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I don't need that bread because I have the bread. I don't need that bread. I have the bread of the word of God. He turned and Jesus then finds Satan taking him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he takes him up there. He tempts him now spiritually and is this spiritual temptation, this temptation of his spirit, which he communes with the Father and with us. Jesus displays spiritual temp or discipline when Satan looks at him and tempts him and says, cast yourself down. He's given the angels charge over you. You'll not, uh, you'll not even uh, you know, hurt yourself on uh, a stone. He'll never allow it. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16 has the response that Jesus gives back to Satan, ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as he tempted him in Massa. God cannot be tempted. Then he tempts him mentally in his soul, his mental discipline. When he says to him, hey, 
Jesus, you're, you're something. Do you remember hearing the Spirit say, God the Father say, this is my beloved Son, and the Spirit descended upon you? You're more special than any other man. Jesus, knowing right and wrong and truth, Satan says to him, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. Now, as God, that's no temptation. Because it was all his anyway, and then some. But as a man, what he's saying here is, if you'll just do this, you come, you've said, and you will say, if you be high and lifted up, you'll draw them in unto you. Let's just go ahead and circumvent the process. Let's go ahead and get there now. Let me exalt you. Then you can go ahead and start drawing all men unto you. But a temptation to exalt self instead of God. Jesus stands and answers as he gives him and quotes back to him Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. I will not dishonor or be irreverent to my God. It is all his to begin with. Why is this important? Jesus is demonstrating for us that he knows exactly how we feel when we're tempted. He understands it so we understand that we as his creation and created in his image can follow his example and can overcome the sin that so easily besets us. We see after Jesus' temptation how that translates to the temptation of man. What does temptation look like for you and I? In 1 John chapter number 2, in uh, verses 15 through 17, uh, the Bible lays out here and tells us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And we look and we see tonight that when we as man come unto temptation, that we face the same temptations that Jesus faced. We face the temptation of our physical body, the flesh. We see the temptation of the soul and that mental capacity in the lust of the eyes. And we see that spiritual temptation that Jesus faced in the pride of life. Satan confronts us with the same sin and the same process from the Garden of Eden until the return of the king. There's not really anything different in Satan's arsenal. It's all the same temptation poured out to tempt the same flesh that God created in the garden in his image. That Jesus has demonstrated that in walking in the spirit we can overcome and conquer. We see that that temptation comes and it leads to sin. And the Bible gives us the steps of sin so that we can recognize what derailed and what upset all of creation when the curse of sin came upon the earth. In James chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16, he said, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. When we are drawn away with the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, then it leads to sin. Then when lust hath conceived, 
it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. My friends, tonight what we see is that when we fall into the trap of temptation and we find ourselves led by the lust of our flesh and the lust of our eyes and the pride of life, then as we begin to let that process take its natural course, that sin will begin itself in our mind in lust and it will, uh, it will carry over into the body and become sin and it will lead us to a place of spiritual death. I'm not saying tonight that it's death in the sense that the Spirit of God is taken away from us and salvation is revoked. We know that's not possible. But how many people sit in the church pew week in and week out that have zero spiritual life left in them? Amen. That have no real capacity to honor and glorify God. And God is saying to us, I have created you in my image. I have created you to live victoriously over sin. You have every part of me living in you. You have Jesus showing you how you can overcome the things that will prevent you from doing what I created you to do. He's demonstrated that for you. He's laid it out there for you. But pastor, but temptation is strong. It's hard. I understand. I know it's difficult. Do you think it wasn't difficult for Jesus after 40 days of fasting and, uh, and of no drink, isolated and alone, when Satan came to tempt him? But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 tells us that there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common uh, to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may also be able to bear it. And the principle is this, that whenever Satan brings temptation, there's always a door of escape right there beside it. I have to choose in that moment of temptation, will I take the escape route that God has provided or will I live in the lust of my flesh? How will I dwell? Will I glorify me or will I glorify God? My life is going to glorify someone. My life was created in the image of God to glorify God. And if I choose not to glorify God, if I bring dishonor to God, then I glorify self and in short, I glorify the God of this world and Satan. Who will I glorify tonight? There are steps to sin that God has given us a way to overcome. That's our image tonight. We are created in the image of God. Secondly, tonight, consider that man is a tool of God. God did not create us to just sit on the sidelines. He did not create us to just stand by and watch everything else happen. Again, in our in Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. What I'm saying tonight is that man is God's tool. We are here as a servant to our king. We are here to bring honor and glory by worshiping him. 
And just a couple of thoughts here as we look at our being a tool in God's hand is to understand that my purpose in living is to be used by my God. I don't want to be a tool that's just left in the shed. Amen. We're getting to that time of the year where, uh, where the, in our part of the world, nature is extremely confused. The two live oak trees in front of my house have decided that it's fall. Uh, my wife and daughter, while I was out of town, took pity on me and they, uh, they got out and raked my front yard and mowed down all the clover and things that were gone. I, I'm, uh, I, I was impressed and surprised. They, they couldn't get the weed eater running, but they got the lawnmower going and they know how to operate a rake. Uh, there's tools in the garage that, uh, that get used in the summer months, and some of them get used a lot more frequently than some of the others do. I, I don't know about you, but in God's economy, I want to be that tool that is a, is a tool that the master looks for right off. Amen. If you uh, do anything with those types of things, whatever your work is, whatever your tools are, you tend to have your favorite tool. Probably my greatest tool in, in work outside of, uh, outside of my books, but in actually getting thought to paper, one of my great tools is a pen. I'm pretty picky about the pens that I like, Brother Phil will testify to. I have a certain type of pen that I like. It's not a cheap pen, but it's not a massively expensive pen. I know pastors that think that they can't write unless they're writing with about a $500 pen. I don't even know what I'd be afraid to try to write with an expensive pen like that. Uh, I mean, I thought somebody gave me one time when I was younger a cross pen, and I thought that that was uh, the creme de la creme of pens, you know, and I found out since that uh, that's a pretty cheap pen. Uh, in the grand scheme of things. And I just, I have my little zebra pens that I like with a real fine point. I'm left-handed and I turn my paper a funny way when I write. And if I get something that's a gel or something that's different, it tends to smear the ink as my hand drags across what I've already written uh, just because of the funny way in which I put things on paper. Uh, and so that pen doesn't smear. That pen has a fine point. And I don't write so great as Miss Ruby can testify to. And so as I uh, go through my business, I have a favorite tool. It's not that I can't make do with something else, but I, I have a tool that is, is a favorite. <clears throat> when we get out, and probably tomorrow, we'll get out and work in our little, uh, our little garden boxes in the lawn. I've got this, uh, you know, we've got the typical tools like a rake and a hoe and things like that to kind of get the weeds out. Uh, but I'm not reaching for those right off. I'm reaching for the garden weasel. It roots everything out and loosens everything up and makes the soil nice and loose so that it's easy to work with, with very little effort on my part. That's the best kind of tool, the kind of tool that makes your life a little easier. I, I've done a lot of things where I've come in and I've tried to do something and it just took, it, it took a couple of hours where if I would have had the right tool, it would have taken, taken about 15 minutes. And trying to undo a screw with a, uh, with a dime or with a penny or with a pocket knife blade uh, because there was no screwdriver and struggling and fighting with it to try to get it all turned around and not cutting your finger off. And, uh, and I have bad experiences in, with knives, especially in my right hand. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I try to be careful with those things. But man, if I had just had the screwdriver, it would have been awesome. I want to be that kind of tool for God. I want to be a favorite tool of God. I don't want to be a tool that is a la that I'm just a I'm a stand-in or I'm a last resort or I'm I can make do with that. I want to be the tool that God looks for whenever He comes to get the job done. 
Why? Because my purpose in living is to be used by my God. It's to do what he's called me to do. Second thought that I would say about being a tool of God is that my desire should be to be the best tool possible for the master's use. That I should walk worthy of the vocation to where I've been called. That I should do my very best and it should be the great desire of my life to live in such a way that God is honored and glorified and that Christ is exalted so that when I am used by my master, I can do what he gave me to do well. I, you know, I don't, I, my wife in the kitchen, she's got certain knives that she likes better than she likes others. And ultimately, when it gets down to it, she likes the sharp ones. A sharp one that's not your favorite becomes your favorite if your favorite one is dull. And so you look for that tool that's ready to be used, that's prepared and that's worthy. Man is a tool of God. David cries out, looks at the glories of heaven. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Man is the image of God. Why are we special? Because we're in his image. Because we exemplify his character traits. Because we're his tool to carry his message to a lost world. Because we're his instrument to, to edify and to help one another grow in the grace of our God within the existence of our local assembly. We're a tool of God. Thirdly, we are a living soul. If there's one instance in Genesis in the creation act that sets us apart from all the rest of creation, it is this fact. That man is a living soul. I've never ceased to be amazed by Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And everything else that came to be, the sun in its magnificence, the stars and their splendor, the earth in its glory, the, the wildlife and the animal kingdom that's out there and, uh, and the awe that we can stand by and watch how it interacts and how it behaves and how it works in harmony and all of its cruel beauty. But verse number seven says something about us that it says about nothing else in creation, not even the angels. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. When I read that verse, I can't help but try to visualize God sitting on his throne speaking and there's water, speaking and there are fish in the ocean, speaking and there are birds in the air, speaking and the plant life covers the earth, speaking and animal life springs to the earth. To see, and I don't know that it happened this way, but in my mind's eye it did. God get up off of his throne step upon his freshly created soil and kneel down and form with his own hands man into this shape and then to bend down on his knees and to put his mouth against Adam's and to breathe into him the breath of life Amen. making him a living soul. If you don't believe it happened that way, that's okay. I can't back that up with scripture. That's my own theology, but leave it alone. It helps me. Amen. When we look and we consider how special and how sacred man is to God, we realize that that living soul, unlike the animals, unlike the earth, 
unlike the sun, the moon, and the stars, will abide with God for all of eternity or will abide in the lake of fire for all of eternity, depending upon what we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. What is man? Man is the image of God. What is man? Man is the tool of God. What is man? Man is a living soul. Fourthly tonight, what is man? Man is a companion of God. What a wonderful thought it is that God created me not simply to be his image and not simply to be that living soul, not simply to be a tool in the shed to be used, but he made me to be his companion. Genesis chapter number 3 and verse 8, Adam and Eve have sinned, fellowship is being severed, the curse is about to be proclaimed upon the earth. In verse number 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The wording, the language here indicates that this was a regular occurrence, that this was no strange thing. That they knew that God was coming. They knew when God was coming. They knew where God was coming. And they hid themselves in shame. They heard his voice. He was walking in the garden. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Wherefore I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat. And man said, the first instance of blame shifting in all of history. Amen. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she did give me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the rest, we live every day. Amen. Bodies that are broken, disease that's rampant, lives that are ruined and hopeless. My friends, that was not the reason that God created man. He created us to be our companion. He created us that we might walk with him. He created us that he might take pleasure in our presence. It is the perfect will of God for my life to be his companion. And it is the perfect will of God for your life to be his companion. And when I'm hidden in sin, that fellowship is broken. But when I am standing in the righteousness and forgiveness of Christ and I stand rightly and justly before him, I am able then to fulfill the purpose of my creation and have companionship and fellowship with God and fulfill the very thing that he created me to do. Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4 share with us that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit is life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be filled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. It really is pretty simple tonight. 
I am either going to walk to satisfy and please this flesh or I'm going to walk in the spirit to please my God. I am going to seek the companion of those who would disgrace and defy and dishonor him or I'm going to seek the companions of those that are walking with him that will elevate my life to him. It's a simple choice. It is a crucial choice. Who will we walk with? We were made to walk with God. Lastly tonight, consider that man is to glorify God in everything. In all things, man is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 says, Whatsoever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do therefore to the glory of God. Why are we here? We're here to glorify God. We're here to walk with God. We're here to be used of God. We're here to be the image of God to a lost world around us. God looked and he said, I'm going to confound the mighty. I'm going to use the weak and the feeble to conquer the mighty. I am going to do things that make sense to no one. And I'm going to use mankind to do it. David, facing great enemies, overwhelming odds, on more than one occasion as we saw as we began tonight, stood in awe of the splendor of God's heavens and earth and creation and said in light of the enemies that were encroaching upon him, who am I that you would take the time to think about me? How could I be special to you? How could my life matter in the economy of all eternity? And God says, let me tell you, David, why you matter. You matter because you're my image. You matter because you're my tool. You matter because you're a living soul. You matter because you're my friend and companion. And you matter because when you walk in my word and when you walk in the spirit, you glorify me and you fulfill the very reason for which I've created you. Isaiah chapter number 43 and verse 7. Isaiah wrote it, even every one that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. And I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. You know what we really need a good dose of tonight? We need to stop trying to impress God. And we need to learn what it's like to walk with him. We need to stop trying to wow the creator with how hard we can work, with how committed we are to his ministry, with how devoted we are. Listen, that, that's not why he created us. We can't truly do the things that he created us to do without having a role in those things. But the reality is, is that we have to do things God's way and in God's order. Amen. And the best way for me to be effective in living my life in a way that pleases God, that glorifies God, and that can be used by God, is to remember that God in his infinite wisdom, which I will never on this earth comprehend, decided that we were important and that we were valuable and that we were necessary and that we were worth the trouble. 
You're my image, he said. I'll use you if you'll let me. You're not like the animals. You're a living soul. You're my companion. I can just see God in heaven saying, I wish that I could say about everyone. The same thing that I said about Abraham when I said he was my friend. There's no question, and I said this this morning, that God is our friend. But there is a great question as to whether or not we'll be the friend of God. Are we friendly to God tonight? Are we glorifying God tonight? God is not glorified by the amount of things that we do in our own power and strength. God is glorified when we realize that in our human frailty, we are nothing. We are worthless. We are powerless. And when that realization comes upon us, and when the enemies encroach upon us, we are forced to come to our God and to humble ourselves and say, God, I'm not worth it. But to you I am. And I don't understand. But if you'll use me, I'm here. And when God takes us in our brokenness, when God takes us in our emptiness, and when God puts his power upon us and uses us to communicate his message, to love his brethren, to edify his saints, to exhort the brethren, then Jesus is lifted up. God is glorified. And a life that was useless becomes a life of great value. What kind of a tool are you tonight? What kind of a tool am I? Is my living soul being wasted, chasing after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Or is my living soul communing with my God, being a faithful, loving, loyal companion that's bringing him glory? The choice is simple. I can either walk in the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and I can glorify me. Even in the doing of religious deeds, or I can walk as a companion to God and glorify Him.